It's Tuesday, May the 4th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast exploring social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution, the moderator of today's show. That means I have the privilege of introducing the stars of our show, three Hoover Institution senior fellows we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. We begin with John Cochran, a.k.a. The Grumpy Economist. That's the title of his uh, podcast and blog. John is also the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hello, John. Hi, everybody, and let me start the litany of bad jokes by wishing you all a happy doomsday. <laughs> well played, sir. Our second good fellow, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He's a former presidential national security advisor, and he is the Hoover Institution's Fuada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. Hello, H.R. Hey, Bill. Great to see everybody. I think we're all back in California, and I am looking forward to doom. <laughs> Pun number two. <laughs> Our third good fellow, Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil's a renowned historian and author. His latest book, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe, was released today. It's out on the bookshelf, so go get it. That's why the bad puns to start the show. And that is indeed the topic of today's show, Doom. Neil, congratulations. A question for you, my friend. How much of your immediate future is going to be tied up in the pursuit of discussing doom in venues like this? A lot. Uh, in fact, I'm doomed to be uh, interviewed uh, to, to near near to death. I don't think anybody's ever died of uh, book publicity, but death by interview one day will happen. And I hope I won't be the first uh, medical case uh, to go into the uh, into the history books because it's surprisingly tiring to talk about your own book. And HR will confirm this because he's just been through the process with uh, with his own book after a certain point. I find I stop believing my own arguments because I've heard them from myself too often and my my natural contrarianism kicks in and I have to restrain myself from disagreeing with my own book. So, so Neil, your weariness to talk about your book is my cue to ask you about your book. Uh, and let's start with the title itself, Doom, Politics of Catastrophe. Explain the phrase politics of catastrophe. Well, the book really originated uh, before the pandemic with my thinking a lot about dystopias and, and disasters, uh, and particularly the role of technological change in, in disastrous scenarios. I, I'd gone through a long period of not reading science fiction, and I suddenly took it into my head that for a historian only to read history might, might be bad practice, because the one thing history is not good at doing is giving you a sense of plausible uh, future technological changes. So I had a big science fiction binge in 2018, 2019. And it was partly because I had been immersing myself in books like Margaret Atwood's uh, uh, trilogy. Seen enough uh, science fiction pandemic scenarios to know just exactly what to look for back in, in January last year. I wanted to write a book that contextualized disaster, uh, and that meant bringing all the different kinds of, of disaster together in one, in one place to try to think about them uh -huh. systematically. I, and I realized that hadn't really been, been done before. Now, now, being a Scotsman and therefore naturally rather a pessimist, the, the phrase we're doomed is one that the English associate closely with the Scots. I probably have an emotional predisposition to think a lot about disastrous scenarios. I was brought up to always be thinking about the worst case scenario because as my, my uncle Jimmy liked to say, uh, you'll, you'll sometimes be pleasantly surprised, but you'll never be disappointed. So there's a kind of, um, there's a sort of psychological uh, quirk here that, that if one thinks a lot about disaster, in theory, at least one's better prepared for it. And this is a quite un-American way of thinking because Americans like to be on the sunny side of the street. Uh, but that's the sort of background uh, to, to the book. And the th politics of catastrophe is a phrase that's very important because one of the key arguments of the book is that really all disasters are in some measure politically constructed. That, that to talk about a natural disaster as opposed to a man-made disaster is a little bit of a false dichotomy because even a volcanic eruption is only disastrous in terms of excess mortality if a bunch of people decided to build a city right next to the volcano. Uh, I think a pandemic, uh, starts with a novel pathogen in the case of COVID-19, but it's actually the responses of governments that determined how disastrous that novel pathogen would be. 
remember in Taiwan, precisely 11 people have been recorded as dying of COVID-19. And Taiwan is right next to the epicenter where the, uh, where the pandemic began. So the politics of catastrophe is really the theme. Disasters ultimately are all, they're all man-made in some sense, even if it's only to the extent of deciding to build a large city near a volcano. Okay, John and uh, HR, you've read the book, have at. You want to go first for a change, HR? I always jump in hey, and uh, crash no, hey, too sure, much. Sure, sure. I'd just like to say congratulations, first of all. The book is really brilliant. And you know, my expectations were high, Neil. You far exceeded them. And I think you will for all readers. So what I just want to just share with our our listeners you know, and our, and our viewers, this isn't a book that just imparts knowledge about disasters. I think it's in a, book, a book that imparts wisdom. I think we get to see how Neil Ferguson thinks about the world. And I think it's a sterling example about how to think about the human experience and how to use knowledge of the past to understand the present and then make a grounded reason projection into the future. And and Neil, what I'd like to ask you is, is one of the themes that runs through the book is our desire to impose order, to affect control over our circumstances and conditions and, 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 our, and our futures. Uh, and, 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 and the reality, which is, is quite the opposite, that, that we, we're, we find it quite difficult to, to predict what's going to happen next. And, uh, and, and that we are continuously interacting with one another, with our environment, uh, in 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 this in a complex way, you you use complexity theory throughout the book and network science. Could you just could you just um, maybe describe for our viewers what we get wrong? You know, when we try to predict what's going to happen in the future, or we try to exert control, you know, either over ourselves or over our natural environment. Well, well, first of all, thank thanks for the kind words, HR. Uh, I think that the problem, the central predicaments. Uh, in which we find ourselves, is that we really would quite like uh, to be able to foresee the future with much greater precision than is possible. And, and we would quite like to have a sense of, of what the probabilities are of, of, of various scenarios, good and bad. Uh, and that's actually not really possible. So throughout human history, we've tried to come up with, with with mental hacks that, that give us some sense of, of being able to anticipate the future. Uh, wh whether it's through religion, which is really how most societies try to make sense of the somewhat chaotic nature of life, or, or more recently with, with models in, in, in secular uh, political and, and social science. Uh, in my field, that there's been a long uh, struggle to try to come up with a cyclical theory of, of history, because if only there's some discernible cycle, then we should have a sense of roughly what's coming next. And this is enormously attractive. People keep coming back to the idea that there could be historical cycles. Uh, generational cycles, for example, are recurrently attractive. The terrible, sad truth is that there can't really be such predictable patterns in history because there's just too much that's chaotic about the historical process. And the best illustration of this, I think, is the way that disasters happen. Uh, disasters, uh, whether they're wars or pandemics or massive earthquakes or volcanic eruptions, uh, droughts, you, you name any disaster you like, they, they, they are not normally distributed in the way that road accidents or human height are normally distributed around a bell curve. Quite the opposite. They can be randomly distributed. There's no pattern to the incidence of war in history, and war is your special subject. HR, you'll know that there have been two absolutely vast wars in modern history and a great many small ones, and there just isn't a pattern in the data that allows us to say what the probability is of World War III and when it might happen. Same goes for massive earthquakes. Same, John, goes for economic disasters. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, we've had one Great Depression. Uh, we came close to having another maybe after 2008, but that's not a huge sample size of Great Depressions. We have lots of recessions, but they vary enormously in their size and, and duration. So here's the bad news. If it's, if it's really the case that history is one damn disaster after another, the way that disasters happen and the variety of forms that disasters take more or less rules out any predictable future. There's just a lot of uncertainty. Some things are predictable. Let's not uh, exaggerate here. It's pretty clear that the weather is going to get warmer as we're now 
in, in May. Uh, uh, and in the Northern Hemisphere, we know that it gets warmer. That's predictable. But can we predict the next major earthquake on the San Andreas Fault, which we hope won't happen while we're on this show? No, we really can't. Or we know that the that there is likely to be one, but we just don't know when, we just don't know how big. And that's the fundamental problem of, of human existence. Much more uncertainty than we are comfortable with and much less calculable risk. So I, I wanna, actually, I'm gonna ask another HR question, but emphasize that. <clears throat> um, I take that as a lesson of your book. That certainly is my view of economic policy and that our economic policymakers, it's hilarious. They give you the forecast and then tell you what we're gonna do. And then I have raised my hand with, and said, well, what are your, what, what are your scenarios that you're worried about? And they say, well, here's the forecast, here's what we're gonna do. <laughs> and I think this tells you something that the right, <clears throat> if these events are inherently unpredictable as certainly economic crises, economic crises are by definition un unpredictable because if you knew it was gonna happen tomorrow, you'd go take your money out today and it would happen today. <laughs> Um, but, and I think, I think that holds of all the other ones. <clears throat> if things are inherently unpredictable, there is something you can do about it. Uh, it you know, you don't know when the earthquake's going to come, but you know what it's going to look like when it comes. Uh, you can make plans for that. <clears throat> um, and uh, moreover, you, you can think about all the bad things that could happen. And here's where I think military has uh, HR, I'm going to invite you to give a speech. If anybody is familiar with disaster, it should be military historians, because by definition, every war ends in a disaster for at least one side, and usually both of them. And you spend your life uh, thinking about how to, uh, how, how to, you know, you start with can they and don't let them envelop you on both sides, right? Uh, now, I think the answer is you, have, you cannot plan. No plan survives contact with the enemy. Uh, but you must be flexible and uh, in your ability to adapt uh, to, to what happens. Um, that may be what I would take the notice, but what, what does the military uh, historian tell us about the right way to handle, you know, all the things military where don't fight the last war, uh, don't build a Maginot line because they're going to go around you again in Belgium. Uh, you know, you certainly have studied how to survive disasters and should have lessons for the rest of us. Yeah, well, I ask Neil to comment on this too because you know his chapter uh, on political incompetence begins with the discussion of of military incompetence and and the traps that we fall into, cognitive traps and and heuristic biases and so forth. And you know, Clausewitz, you know, the, the great Prussian philosopher of war, I think would have loved Neil's book, right? Because because he said, you know, they aim at fixed values, but in war everything is uncertain. And I think one of the critical elements of setting up uh, uh, military organizations for success in battle, in combat, is to ensure that they are capable of operating under conditions of profound uncertainty. A way to do that is really consistent with complexity theory, right? You create organizations that have the combinations of capabilities that allow them to operate semi-autonomously and to cope with a certain part of that complex problem set in a way that creates multiple dilemmas for the enemy and maintains your, their freedom of movement and action. And, and an organization that can adapt very quickly to changes in circumstances, identifying opportunities or protecting against dangers. But I'd ask Neil to comment on this and what, what you learned, what you think about you know, the lessons from military history as they apply to political decision-making as, as, as well. And I really enjoyed your section, if you wouldn't mind summarizing it, on, on heuristic biases and cognitive traps. Because I think on our show, uh, jo uh, John and, and, and Bill and Neil, we, we talk about this implicitly you know, through, uh, through in, in every one of our episodes, especially those that dealt with our response to the pandemic. Yeah, I think one of the, the challenges uh, that I faced writing this book was that I wanted to bring under the same roof military disasters uh, and natural disasters, as well as economic uh, and public health disasters, because it struck me that there were certain common features that we could try to, to identify. And the great thing about uh, what you just said, HR, is that it reminds us that the military has had to recognize uh, the, the power of uncertainty for a very long time. And Clausewitz's great contribution was to encourage uh, generals to realize that, that very few plans survived contact uh, with the enemy and that, that fog descends almost the minute military operations begin. I think that's true of everything. And part of the problem that we have in public health in the US in 2020 
was that it turned out that the public health bureaucracy at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Department of Health and Human Services were not at all attuned to thinking about a crisis the way uh, people in your world are. Uh, and their plan, which existed in multiple editions, heaven knows there were lots of pandemic preparedness plans, disintegrated on contact with the pathogen, one might say. So I, I do think there's an important uh, insight here, which we can we can import from the military realm into, uh, into the civilian realm, that there needs to be a degree of decentralization of command, and the initiative needs to be in the hands of, of relatively junior people to improvise rather than to wait for orders from the center. One of the things I do in the book is revisit one of the great military disasters of British history, the Battle of the Somme in 1916, something I wrote about more than 20 years ago in the pity of war. I remember when I was learning uh, the history of the First World War, being very surprised to find that the highly centralized army that waited for orders before acting in the field was the British army. And in fact, the German army, contrary to national stereotype, was the one that was highly decentralized and in which non-commissioned officers were encouraged to take the initiative. Uh, so it was very interesting to revisit the Somme and, and think about it, read up on some of the more recent literature and realize that, that, that this was an absolutely classic military disaster in the sense that uh, once the plan began to unravel, which was almost immediately, uh, there was no real sense, uh, at least on the part of the junior officers in the field, that they had any options other than to plow on. Uh, and that meant enormously high casualties for almost no real gain. I think that problem of uh, the rigid plan that you stick to, even when it's obviously failing, is a problem that's uh, to be found in many different uh, walks of life. Uh, you mentioned the, the problem of, of cognitive biases and uh, behavioral science and behavioral psychology have become very, very fashionable fields of, of study. I, I'm expecting John to be a little bit uh, skeptical about some of this uh, work because uh, I, I know from conversations we had while I was writing the book uh, that he's not an entirely convinced believer that we human beings are just hopelessly bad uh, at assessing risk. But if you if you run through the list of different uh, cognitive biases that I talk about in the book, the availability bias, which means we rely on information that's readily to hand or that we can easily remember, hindsight bias, which means we attach higher probabilities to events after they've happened than we did before they've happened, the problem of induction, which leads us to formulate general rules on the basis of insufficient information. And I could go on, fallacy of conjunction, confirmation bias, contamination effects, the effect heuristic scope neglect, overconfidence and calibration. That's a phenomenon that is very uh, uh, frequently encountered in academia. Bystander apathy, that, that long list of, of quirks in the way that we think as human beings does help explain why in the face of an approaching disaster, so many governments and individuals last year made terrible decisions. And, and this is why it's quite helpful to hang the argument on the, the recent disaster and not by any means over disaster of, of COVID-19, because this was a disaster that was frequently predicted to the point that it was almost monotonous to find yet another TED talk or article in foreign affairs about the coming pandemic. Uh, and on paper, we were prepared for this. Uh, and yet when it struck, it turned out that we were completely unable to cope with it as well as as people in, say, Taiwan or, or South Korea. A part of the explanation for this must be uh, a kind of bureaucratic rigidity and an inability to be flexible yeah. when the battle begins. But part of it is obviously that we're just not terribly good at assessing risk, even when uh, we have quite a bit of data about the risk. So I, I think, um, as you know from our long discussion on it, uh, the behavioral biases are real. But I think, as you just said in the second half of your statement, they miss the point. Um, people do dumb things sometimes. People put together in government agencies do even dumber things. And in fact, your story is one of not the story of individual misperceptions of risk, but of social, uh, government, economic, bureaucratic structures that are unable to react even when the individual people understand the risks pretty darn well. 
And I think that's a more interesting story. That's my antipathy to behavioralism is not uh, due, not at all to the fact of how it's description of how people behave, but too many behavioral economists jump to the conclusion, well, the people are all poor little morons, so the government agencies must decide for them. Whereas in fact, any social psychology uh, will tell you that a government agency, a group of people, uh, especially a political group of people is, is likely to make far worse decisions. Our discussion with Steven Pinker was, was very good on that. But so, so I wanna just, uh, I think I wanna summarize a little, um, then I've got more questions when it's my turn, but uh, I, the word resilience is the one that I see in, in all of this. You, you have to not, the first thing you do in a war is don't lose, <laughs> live to fight another day. In my own, recently I've been thinking about financial regulation, our, our current financial regulators view to risk, they're now worried about climate risk and they want to you know, figure out exactly what's gonna happen for the next hundred years and, and exactly who's gonna gain and lose how much money and, and so forth. Uh, that seems not very useful. If you really worry about financial risk, um, what you want is a huge amount of capital so that the financial system can survive no matter what hits it, which might be climate, it might be a pandemic, it might be a war, it might be a cyber attack. And I think that's the fundamental, we need social, bureaucratic, economic, military structures that are resilient to the unplanned things that are gonna hit them as opposed to elaborate plans. And part of that resilience is exactly what you mentioned, the ability of, of people out there with the information uh, to handle things as opposed to try to centralize and foresee a response. Yeah, I learned a lot from reading books by Nassim Taleb in the last few years. And one of my favorites of, of his is Anti-Fragile. Um, and Taleb's argument is that we tend to construct complex systems, for example, of financial regulation, that are very fragile. Uh, they're optimized, they're very efficient, but they turn out to be very fragile when they're struck uh, by some perturbation, by a disaster. Uh, and the ideal system, and this can be found in the natural world, is, is one that's actually anti-fragile. Uh, what doesn't kill it makes it stronger. Uh, and if you can't achieve that, then at least be resilient. Uh, if you're a bank, have more capital uh, than you had in 2008. Uh, if you're a public health system, you probably want some capacity for intensive care that seems like it's surplus most of the time, but my goodness, you are glad you have it when the crisis strikes. And if we look at the countries that are in parlous situations at the moment, India in particular, but the problem is just obviously a, a problem of insufficient capacity for such a crisis. And because disasters are not normally distributed, there are these fat tails, another thing that, that Talab wrote about in The Black Swan, you just have to accept there needs to be some apparent redundancy in the system for the eventuality uh, that disaster strikes, because the disaster is probably more likely than you're assuming. It's just that big disasters don't happen frequently enough to persuade us uh, to have that kind of resiliency. And this is where historians have a role to play. Living memory is not that great. How many people really had any memory of the 1918-19 influenza? Uh, almost none could really claim to remember that when, when COVID-19 struck. Uh, and so the historian's job is to say, you know, there are things like pandemics or really big wars. They may only happen every once or twice a century, but you can't assume that their probability is, is van so vanishingly small that you don't need to, to prepare for them. So the challenge, I think, and this is a key point that I'd like to get your thoughts on, both of you. How do we, in our, in our various public services, this may also be a challenge for private entities too, how, how do we build that kind of resiliency? Because it seems to me that what's really striking about the last year and a half is that the fragility comes from a particularly bureaucratic mindset. One might even see, oh. say legalistic. You are very well prepared for a certain scenario that you've given all your attention to, you've got the 36 page report and the 100 slide deck, and you are prepared for that disaster, or you're preparing, as John just described, for the disaster of climate change. And you've got pages and pages of preparations based on your model and the scenarios that your model has generated. It's just that that's not the disaster that, that you get. Uh, and, and I'm trying to think about how we can get away from this rather bureaucratic approach to risk management, which says, well, there is this risk, we can imagine it, and here are the regulations that we're going to devise to, to deal with the risk. This is almost 
it's sort of about being exactly wrong than rather than roughly right. And this seems like a pathology throughout the bureaucracy, wherever one looks really, an inability to be flexible and responsive to a pretty wide range of, of disasters. Uh, how do we get there? I'm, I'm not sure I quite know the answer to that well, question. Let's, which let's take proposing. some successes. Um, so uh, aviation safety, I think, is a success. They, they, you know, jets are unbelievably safe. This did not come automatically. This came after long, hard work of, now they did, the and this was a bureaucracy, the combination of the FAA and the industry worked together on this one. Uh, and they paid attention to the H1N1 and the SARS and the Ebola. Uh, they had lots of little, all the little, they, they tracked all the near misses, all the, all the problems. They got, they got ways to get that information together and implement it. I would say this is what the US military specializes in. We, we don't fight a big war that often, but we fight lots of little wars which battle tests things and, and force, you know, armies that sit there for 50 years and do nothing uh, tents around the world seem to get uh, less and less competent. So having, learning the lessons from the regular small ones and a process of con continuous improvement does, that has, there's two examples that do seem to sort of work. Yeah. Hey, well, you, know, I, you know, I think, I think that this, this has a lot to do with the theme that runs through Doom, you know, which is this tension between whether you believe the future lies more in the realm of certainty or more in the realm of uncertainty. And I think once you come down on one side or the other, there are a series of other assumptions about the nature of our world or of a, a particular uh, part of our world and, and, and uh, human experience that flow from that. So if you think the future is certain, then you can have perfect plans and you can centralize control, right? And you can, you can, you can look for conformity in following those plans. You'll have a relatively centralized organization you're going to be biased in favor of efficiency, you know, over effectiveness and resilience, like we saw our supply chains become uh, over time. And, and I think that, you know, as I was reading, as I was reading Doom, I was thinking about this orthodoxy of a revolution in military affairs in the 1990s, which I think was a big setup, you know, for some of the, the, the strategic shocks and disappointments that we that we encountered uh, in, in the 2000s. And so I, I really think that it has everything to do with, you know, with the main theme in the book. And what I would like to ask, uh, Neil, back to you on this is, first of all, do, do you agree with that? And then you write extensively about networks, which I really, I've learned a lot from you about networks on the PBS uh, film, some of the essays you've written. Uh, and and you know, we, what we've seen with the pandemic, right, is how networks can, can, uh, can transmit uh, and move a malady through it quickly to have a, a major effect on on us uh, in connection with COVID nineteen. I think we see that with social media. Right? How how networks associated with social media can affect us psychologically in, in a way that is that, that is profoundly negative. But what, what I wanted to ask you is, with these characteristics of networks that you write about, which I think is really uh, a unique way to think about them. Right, this is that you know no man is an island. Right, so we're connected. Birds of a feather flock together. We tend to be around people we enjoy, you know, like the, like we enjoy each other's company so much and, and good fellows that, uh, you know, that, that weak ties are strong, which means that even if you're only tenuously connected, you know, the, just the magnitude of those connections make those, those networks strong, uh, that the structure determines the virality, like how quickly it can move through networks and then networks never sleep. So if these are the characteristics Neil, what's the good side of, of those networks, right? I mean, what, you know, can, can we apply the nature of networks to the cure as well as understanding the disease? And, and so, you know, I hate to use this term, you know, but the, uh, how can we build back better? How can we emerge stronger like the English state did after the Black Plague, as you write about, um, you know, by, by understanding networks and the positive aspects of them? Well, in many ways, the last book I did, The Square and the Tower, was sort of like the, the preliminary work for this book, because I decided that I needed to immerse myself in network science and, and teach myself about it, because it felt like historians should really understand this stuff. A lot of the time we're studying social networks. We don't realize we are, but that's what we're doing. And, and that book was really, for me, a pathway into understanding contagion. Uh, you summarize some of the key uh, points in the square and the tower, which I put into this uh, into this book as a kind of refresher. But the, the key thing is that in any contagion, whether it's a contagion of the body uh, caused by a virus or something similar, 
or, or a contagion of the mind caused by a, a meme, if you want to use Richard Dawkins's word, the, the same uh, thing is true in each case. You need to understand the, the pathogen or the meme, the thing itself, but you also need to understand the structure of the network it's attacking. Uh, and in fact, that's about as important. Now, I learned this from reading people like Laszlo Barabasi, one of the great network scientists, uh, physicist by training, but somebody who's done path-breaking work on network structure. And the key insight is that, that networks, social networks between human beings are not like lattices. Each human being does not have the same number of nodes as the rest, the same number of edges rather as the rest. But actually the structure of a social network is, is very often something close to scale-free, i.e. a tiny number of nodes have a vast number of connections and a great many nodes have hardly any at all. If you want to kind of get an intuitive sense of what I'm talking about, look at follower numbers on, on Twitter. There are Well, this is, Neil, this is what you talk about is how like a catastrophe can become a dragon king. I think in chapter four, you know, you talk about how those super connected nodes, right, can, can really magnify the effect. I'm it, sorry to interrupt you, but it just got me thinking about, uh, you know, this, this term dragon king versus, you know, the gray rhinos and the, and the black swan. Every interesting right. distribution has a fat tail. Yeah. And these and these fat tail events are really what the, the book super is about. spreaders and the super spreaders who were such key part of what happened uh, with COVID-19. Uh, you you, you included, as you point out, you I, included. I might well have been one. We'll never know because <laughs> I, I don't know if I had COVID-19 back in January, February of, of last year because you couldn't get tested because CDC didn't know how to organize uh, large-scale testing. Uh, but but let's just to try and step back and understand what super spreaders are, because super spreaders have played a part in contagions uh, in the past. Uh, for example, in HIV AIDS, uh, it was uh, identified quite early on that a relatively small number of people were doing a lot of the spreading. These were people with many, many sexual partners. Well, in the same way that there were super spreaders with COVID, people who were more gregarious, a lot more gregarious than, than most people. I tell the story of one woman in South Korea who did a really extraordinary amount of the spreading of COVID in that, in that country in the space of just a few days in which she was just going to church and going to multiple uh, social events. So super spreaders were important because this particular disease had a low dispersion factor, which translates into lay language as follows. About 20% of the infected people did 80% of the spreading. Uh, and this heterogeneity, which is really a function of, of network structure, is one reason that our response to the pandemic, the, the very blunt instrument of lockdowns, was not a particularly clever one. Whereas the response of the South Koreans and the Taiwanese, which was ramp up testing and then use contact tracing to figure out who might have been infected and then isolate or quarantine the people who were infected, that worked far, far better with much lower economic and, and social costs. So I think network science turned out to be absolutely crucial to understanding the public health problem presented uh, by COVID-19. And it seemed to me as if public health experts in the West didn't get that uh, and didn't understand uh, because they hadn't really learned the lessons of SARS and MERS, previous but much smaller coronavirus-related uh, epidemics. Can I just throw in one other thought, which I think kind of connects our different worlds? Uh, as I was writing about military disasters, I kept being struck by how many armies were defeated by disease yes. rather than by the enemy. Uh, and that armies uh, at, at times in, in, say, European history, when there were a great many infectious diseases for which there were no remedies, armies were great ways of transporting uh, disease around the place. Uh, not only uh, were the soldiers succumbing, but, but anybody that they encountered amongst the civilian population did too. And it, it struck me one of the things that has really become different about modern warfare is that that's much less true, but it's a relatively recent thing that armies can focus on, on killing one another rather than succumbing to, to, to disease. The, the other thing that really struck me as I was thinking about this is the way that you can have these simultaneous plagues of the body and plagues of the mind. And that comes out very clearly when you look at the tail end of World War I uh, when you have both the, the, the 
plague, the ideological plague of Bolshevism, and then the Spanish influenza, one of the worst pandemics in all of history, which ends up killing more people than the war itself had. So the, these themes, I think, illustrate why networks are such a useful way of, of thinking about historical disasters, because nearly all of the great contagions are, are really a, as much a function of network structure as they are a function of the the pathogens themselves. I'll just I'll just point out I'll just point out Neil when I was commissioned in the army in in uh, in in 1984, you know uh, uh, now of course everybody is, is familiar with hand washing stations and field sanitation. But one of my first duties as a new lieutenant was I was the field sanitation officer as an additional duty who had to make sure that that everything was in place to prevent the kind of outbreak that of course you know we had learned from uh, across. Uh, there's so many disasters associated with disease exacting, as you mentioned, a much higher toll than the battlefield had. So, Neil, I, I want to uh, uh, ask you a, a larger question, which is, um, in, in some sense, I find your book hopeful. Uh, and it's the following is, as we're all sort of hyphenated conservatives, which means we worry about society falling apart uh, and um, you know, it, which will be a combination of internal decay and some external pressure. Uh, your disasters are awful, but in so many cases, societies did not fall apart. So the, the, the bubonic plague, which we, we think of as 1350, but was really 1350 to the late 1700s in many waves, killed half of the people around. Uh, it was not uh, totally pleasant afterwards. Um, you know, the Renaissance may have been uh, culturally interesting to those of us who like paintings and art, uh, but was a much more violent uh, and turbulent time. But nonetheless, society held together in an unimaginable way. If you think of, you know, half of the people dying. Um, the, after World War II, think of the devastation in Europe after World War II. Yet within 20 years, Germany and Japan were, were back together. They had some resilience some networks, some social structure. Now we can think of course of places that didn't. And, and I don't wanna, you know, uh, the Holocaust was absolutely, that that was a society that was wiped out. But, you know, Germany recovered from this unbelievable disaster, far worse than the pandemic we've just been through. Now, of course there's contrasts. Um, uh, the Antonine plague seemed to have something to do with the fall of Rome, which is the thing that conservatives always worry about, that there a society, a legal system, did completely fall apart. And the biggest of all, uh, uh, 1491, with something like 90, 95% of the uh, original inhabitants of the Americas and their society uh, fell apart. Now that seems, so it seems to need, in those cases, you've got uh, a plague and a military defeat, which happened at the same time and just wipe out the societies. And I th you can think of other examples. You know, we think of the end of the Ottoman Empire, empires that rot from within and then just bing, uh, you know, get, get kicked off. Although, you know, Turkey itself recovered in many ways. So the larger thought, um, there seems to be a resilience in strong societies. There seems to be a fragility in weak societies. Um, where are we? <laughs> That's a great question. And you're, and you're right that the book is in many ways, an optimistic book. And the title, Doom, is an ironic one. Part of what I try to show early on in the book is that we're fascinated by the notion of the, the end of days. Uh, we've been fascinated by the idea of some apocalyptic end to humanity. I, I, lo I love the Monty Python skit, by the way. Well, and well, and, and over my right shoulder, you see the you'll see the complete works of Monty Python on my <laughs> desk here with the I, rainbow I, cover. I want to reassure uh, <laughs> viewers that Monty Python plays an important part along with Beyond the Fringe and other gems of British comedy in explaining uh, why ideas of, of, uh, of catastrophic uh, uh, annihilation are attractive to us. But, but we, we tend to exaggerate uh, the, 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 the likelihood of, of total catastrophe. And this is very, very uh, contagious is perhaps not the right word to use. But when you listen to some of the discussions of climate change, when people predict the end of the world in 12 years, which I think was two years ago, so it must be 10 years away, uh, if you want to put that in your calendars. I mean, that that sort of thing is very, very recurrent in human history. But it's not really the, the end of the world, the extinction of humanity uh, that we need to worry about. It's disasters that kill a minority of us, uh, from which we usually 
recover. The cases of, of complete and uh, irretrievable disaster, and you mentioned a very good example, the obliteration of the, the, the native uh, peoples of America, particularly the great uh, civilizations of Central and South America, by uh, not European conquest, because the conquistadors did relatively little of the damage. Most of the damage was done by the, the various bugs that they brought with them from Europe. But that's a very unusual case. Um, the Easter Island story is one that, you know, long fascinated anthropologists like Jared Diamond. Uh, but when, when you look closely at, at that story, it, it, it turns out not to be the, the parable of environmental degradation leading to oblivion that we were uh, once told about actually the the reasons why Easter Island is is not or was not uh, a viable society are rather different from the environmental story, but most civilizations prove to be remarkably resilient even in the face of far worse disasters than than COVID nineteen. The Roman Empire was a, a said uh, attacked by multiple plagues. That's not really the reason that the the Roman Empire very slowly declined. Uh, and fell. And so I think the answer to your question, John, is that it's unlikely that the United States is in such a weakened state uh, that collapse is, uh, is, is imminent. But one of the arguments I make towards the end of the book uh, is that the big danger for any free society is not so much the threat from outside. I think there is a significant threat, as we've discussed many times on this show from the People's Republic of China, but the real threat is actually from within. Uh, if you think about the 20th century, the most dangerous force of all was totalitarianism. It's totalitarian regimes that are responsible for the worst uh, examples of, of mass death, uh, of premature and often violent death. Uh, and, and all the major totalitarian regimes were responsible for tens of millions of, of, of deaths. If there's one thing that worries me, it's that we are slipping and sliding into a kind of totalitarianism uh, in the free societies of the West. It's not happening because Big Brother has taken power. It's happening because we don't realize that the, the totalitarian forms of behavior are beginning to spread. Denunciations, the informing, the cancellation, the airbrushing out of things that are suddenly deemed to be ideologically incorrect. So I, I end the book by saying that we, we have a lot of things to worry about from cyber warfare to climate change, yes, by all means, to the next pandemic, uh, to, to a nuclear war, which is not something that's been uh, removed from the list of risks. But maybe the biggest risk is actually that societies around the world succumb again to totalitarianism, given that totalitarianism has been such a disastrous killer in the past. You know, I'd like to segue to the cover of your book here for a second. Speaking of humor, um, there it is. Um, somebody playing golf with a fire raging behind. What's the old joke makes for a tricky par four? Um, let's talk a moment, Neil, about the state of California, the state in which all four of us live, the state in which we're all paying taxes a week from now to California. Um, I'm curious as to what that cover may say about the California existence, Neil, and what you've learned about California in the past year or so, the pandemic, on the note of totalitarianism. When I saw that photograph, which I think was taken uh, a few years ago in Oregon, actually, I remember thinking, yeah, that is a beautiful metaphor for much that is... Uh, strange about modern American society, uh, that you're, in fact, on the brink of, of a calamity, in this case, a wildfire, but you're focusing on, on sinking that, that putt. And I, I like the idea of using this on, on the jacket of the book, partly because I didn't want people to think this was yet another book about COVID, which it's not. COVID is discussed towards the end, but this is a general history of disaster. But I also wanted to allude to uh, the other kind of disaster that, in fact, was pretty spectacular in this part of the world last year, the extraordinary wildfires that, that swept California. And, of course, those illustrate the point about the politics of catastrophe rather well, because while it's very tempting for people to say, ah, there's the proof that climate change is going to cause disaster, in truth, as we, I think, discussed on the show at the time, uh, the wildfire problem is a function of poor public policy, uh, and in particular, the growing difficulty of controlled burn 
in areas that would in the past have been subject to control burn for environmental and other reasons. So California's got itself into a terrible predicament by stopping what used to happen, natural and controlled burn, and creating a huge potential for really large scale fires. Um, and it's almost impossible at this point to figure out how that problem can be solved because vast parts of the state are effectively kindling, just waiting to go up. And there isn't really a, any conceivable way that you could, you could do a controlled burn of, of such a large area. So yeah, I do think California is a good example of, uh, of what can go wrong in a prosperous society. And they don't come much more prosperous than, than California. And yet over the last, let's say 20 or 30 years, multiple failures of public policy have produced all kinds of, of, of social and, and, and economic pathologies. The wildfires are only one. The education system, the public schools have become a kind of uh, a, a parable of, of poor public policy. Uh, exemplified by the the absurdity of San Francisco's schools uh, being renamed, uh, but being closed and and still closed, uh, so that a, a a year of education has been lost by the the poorer kids of 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 this area. I could go on and on about what's wrong with California. Please stop me. But the key point is that this illustrates the the political nature of catastrophe. That none of the things that are wrong with California uh, can be. A Attributed to to nature, unassisted by terrible policy decisions. Yes, John, I, I introduced it back to you, my friend. Oh, <laughs> well, you want me to go on to California? Um, <laughs> yes, and, 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 piece on California. Well, that's a good example of a political system that's lost its capacity to adapt content, com, uh, competently. We haven't built a dam since the 1950s. Uh, the housing uh, thing is stuck in the mud. Everybody recognizes what's wrong with the housing situation in California. They're just uh, unable to do um, the, the fires. You know, with two trillion of stimulus, we ought to be able to hire people to just go out with bulldozers and cut the stuff down if it if it mattered to us. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to waste it all on other things. Um, where I wanted to go with Neil, though, I, I wanted to uh, push on the larger question. I know we're heading towards closing here, um, and I think you brought up something very good. Really. The closest we came to the collapse of Western civilization uh, event was World War I, um, which, uh, you know, Germany really didn't recover at that time. Uh, Russia did not recover. And, uh, you know, World War I really set off World War II, which could have ended much, much worse. Uh, the, the remarkable recovery is, is the whole Western world. Uh, really, let, let's put 1945 as the beginning of the recovery from the World War I uh, calamity. But that leads to, you know, and you're worried about the rise of totalitarianism, as I am, uh, too. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, uh, it is a force now. Uh, as it, you know, there, was, there were bombings and anarchists in the 1905 era as well. Uh, but it really, it took on in the wake of calamity. Uh, so I, I see us perhaps as the 1905 uh, Europe, not quite yet the 1918 Europe. And that's my question for, you know, suppose we had a pandemic. We're now an incredibly prosperous society, uh, healthier. Um, e each year up, up till 2019 was the best year ever in, in human prosperity terms. Peaceful rates of violence, despite what you read in the newspaper, are, are way down. Uh, all the official indicators are good. Yet we are tearing ourselves apart over, you know, Jeff Bezos might've made more money starting Amazon than we would like. Um, Scientific American just declared climate a formal emergency uh, over issues that are, well, yeah, maybe they're right, but they don't seem to me like the, quite the order of the, uh, uh, of the disasters of World War I or of, let me get to the point, 50% of the population dying. Uh, a society that is so torn apart over objectively uh, fairly small issues. Suppose we had a pandemic that killed 50% of Americans in the current situation. Suppose we had a nuclear war. Uh, um, I'm interested by your book, by the way, that environmental catastrophe doesn't show up anywhere in, in history as being the disaster that brings down a civilization. So that one uh, doesn't, at least if we do it now, it will be something new. But suppose we have a real uh, catastrophe on a historical scale do we have the resilience to say, okay, we're going to stop fighting each other and rebuild the American structure, the resilient rule of law, social structures that was able to adapt in the past, or has now the bureaucratic um, 
the bureaucratic uh, uh, fossilization and the emergence uh, total, you know, will the totalitarians use that as the uh, time to take over? And if we think about the end of American civilization, the disaster that befalls us, we're so hyper-specialized. Unlike the Romans, we can't go back to farms. <laughs> All of us uh, are, we, we, we barely know how to, I, I, can't, I can't grow flowers in my backyard, let alone wheat. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the end of that civilization strikes me as, as just hugely worse than going back to the Middle Ages and, and that the totalitarianism would bring it. So that's, it's a long way of saying, do you see us, uh, it, it won't just happen on its own, but it would happen through a lack of resilience to the next big shock. And, and do you see us in that danger? Well, we certainly need to think about much worse case scenarios than we've just lived through. Yes. Uh, because it's certainly clear that the, uh, the, the pandemic was, was only barely a top 20 pandemic. The fire drill. Uh, and so you can think of it as a, as a fire drill. If you, if you imagine uh, a pathogen that's significantly more lethal, closer to 1980-90 influenza, then you end up with uh, 2 million uh, Americans conceivably uh, dying and a, and a global death toll uh, in, in the hundreds of millions conceivably. So there's no question that that scenario has a non-zero probability. We don't know what the hell it is, but there's some reason to worry about it. And I also think that as long as nuclear weapons are part of the arsenal of superpowers, uh, you can't uh, dismiss out of hand the, the possibility of, of a, a nuclear war. And I noticed that uh, Admiral Jim Stavridis's new novel, 2034, uh, which imagines a US-China war, quite quickly escalates into, into nuclear war with uh, cities in both China and the United States being destroyed. Uh, I wonder, if you ask the question, could we could we cope with a worse disaster? Uh, it's tempting to say, well, looking at how badly we cope with this, uh, you know, medium tier disaster, it's not too bright a, a prospect. I, I sometimes simply ask uh, the question, what if a cyber attack takes out the internet for a period of time? How, how does the US function uh, if we're all suddenly offline? Not only would Goodfellas have to be canceled, uh, but uh, there are a number of significantly worse things that would ensue from that. Uh, so we could have a, a complete societal collapse without significant initial casualties, simply because the, the critical technological infrastructure that we've come to depend on uh, crashed. And that, again, is the scenario that uh, HR knows much more about the, than I do. But you, you have to worry about that scenario in the event of a US-China Russia conflict, because that has to be what they would prioritize if they were trying to disable us. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, I've been through phases of pessimism about the, the, the resilience of American society, watching some of the absurdities of the last year, the politicization of everything from masks to vaccines, the ways in which the internet have, has acted as a kind of transmission mechanism for crazy ideas on both the right and the left. But I think, I think, I'm going to say this tentatively, uh, that in the face of a really serious disaster, American society would actually outperform after initially seeming completely hopeless. And this reminds me of Churchill's old dictum that the United States always does the right thing when all the other alternatives have been exhausted. American disaster takes the following form. It starts off really badly. It's the post-Pearl Harbor story. And then after that initial fail, you get this extraordinary uh, rallying uh, unity and the unleashing of energy. Uh, because the United States recruits a lot of talented people, I'm not blowing my own trumpet here, it's, its basic mode of operation is to attract talent through immigration. Uh, when the crisis strikes, there's a lot of talent and energy to be to be unleashed. And my suspicion is that the highly regimented, centrally planned societies, such as the People's Republic of China, might actually not perform as well in the kind of disaster scenario you're talking about, John. So 
I mean, at the risk of, of sounding like uh, the doom-laden optimist, I think there is some reason to think that we might do better than you, your question implies. Well, uh, in, in response to war, America has always come together quickly and it has reinforced you know, the, the strength and social structures. And you're right, totalitarian uh, countries tend, tend not to. So though I think uh, a nuclear war would be a horrible disaster, it, that doesn't strike me as the society ending one. The uh, the uh, you know we did actually quite well. America is right now tops in the pandemic because they did one thing right, which was get the vaccines going, an absolute uh, miracle of of uh, technology, but also of of government. Uh, and we're now leading the world on that. Um, I think therefore the danger the, these you know the society ending dangers are more the ones that come internally. Um, you know California prioritized its vaccine to and this is a quote redress historic inequities as opposed to stop a pandemic that's going. So if you have bodies in the streets, uh, those kind of internal dissensions uh, are more likely to come out than if you have an external aggressor. Uh, and uh, you know, you've mentioned so many other things. We've talked about antibiotic resistant bacteria or crop failure. Uh, I think the danger for the US falling apart is not a clear external state actor, uh, but something that really stresses our, our internal divisions. Of course, when full-blown disaster strikes, we, we're all going to go and work on Victor Davis Hansen's farm because uh, he alone amongst the fellows knows how to farm. So we won't be completely done at Hoover. I don't, Victor Hansen needs to buy fertilizer, seed, oil to keep his tractors going. Uh, and, and he needs to have people on the farm who know how to use guns, which only one of us uh, has any chance of. So. <laughs> I, I think if HR handles the security around the perimeter, Hoover Farm uh, in the post-apocalyptic world will be the place uh, to be. And I certainly give us better better chances of success than certain other institutions at Stanford in, in the apocalyptic scenario. <laughs> so, gentlemen, we have, we, have, we have about a couple of minutes left, gentlemen. So one last question for Neil. Neil, we haven't talked about 1957 in the course of this broadcast. And I mentioned that because it's a year of historic landmarks. Sputnik goes into space. Uh, John Cochran enters the world, I believe, in 1957. And a virus reaches America's shores, the politically incorrect now Asian flu. Uh, as we look back at 1957, Neil, and look at the hand dealt to us today, uh, is 1957, Neil, a tale of different political leadership? Is it a tale of different government? Is it a tale of different society? Because you mentioned in the book, teenagers were ravaged by that flu. I assume that would include a young Joe Biden who would be 15 going on 16 in that year. But yet schools didn't close, society didn't close, life went on. All of the above is is the answer. Obviously, it's not exactly the same, and it would be a mistake to, to suggest that. The U.S. Uh, didn't do too badly uh, compared with uh, last year in 1957 when the Asian flu struck. But globally, these two disasters are very similar. It's about the same proportion of the world's population uh, that is killed by the 57-58 Asian flu. And the responses in the United States are really almost, almost exactly the opposite. There's no state of emergency, no school closures, no lockdowns, almost no money uh, is spent by the federal government. There is no uh, economic shock detectable. There's a mild recession. It has nothing to do with the pandemic. And I think you have to clock this up to, firstly, President Eisenhower's uh, Leadership, he was, uh, to put it mildly, experienced when it came to dealing with disastrous uh, situations. The public health bureaucracy uh, did a good job. It advised Eisenhower they couldn't stop the spread of the, the virus. And therefore, the best thing to do was to focus on getting a vaccine, which they did in an extraordinarily short space of time. Uh, and then you have to say that the society itself was more resilient and less divided. I think it's very striking when one reads the accounts of that time. And I've had numerous emails from people with memories of 57, uh, that, that, that Americans took this uh, threat to their health much more in their stride and, and didn't allow it to become politicized. So I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from for 57, 58. They tell us a lot about how our government has become much less functional. I think they also sh it also shows us how our society then was a great deal more cohesive um, and, yeah, in some ways anti-fragile. Okay. Uh, John and HR, we may not be seeing our friend Neil for a while here. He has a book to promote. Uh, any last thoughts you'd like to say about the book and about your friend? 
Hey, Neil, I, I really enjoyed it. What we didn't talk about today was also, I think, the lessons that are in the book for leaders, especially leaders who are in charge of complex organizations and 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 should endeavor to make those organizations more more resilient and and uh, and resistant to catastrophes. At chapter eight, that was what I'm thinking of in particular, where you talk about how complex systems can go critical and so forth and. And uh, and I just want to say again, congratulations on a, on a really really great book. The other thing I'll just mention, I guess, is that you know this book is 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 really so multidimensional. I also think it is in some ways the historiography of meta history, and I really appreciated your criticisms uh, about how we understand human experience from you know from a historical perspective and where the potential pitfalls are of of misunderstanding that experience. So, Neil, just a wonderful job on the book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and I know our our listeners and viewers will as well. John? Thanks so much. I want to say the same same thing. That was a great book. I, I really enjoyed it. I think our our last thought leads us to, uh, to uh, the point of the historian. Uh, the real question for the next pandemic is, do we learn from the mistakes this time, or do we enshrine what we did last time as inevitable wisdom and, and start by locking down the economy and throwing $7 trillion out the window? Uh, multiplied by however much worse the next pandemic is than this one. Uh, I would hope that we read some history <laughs> and and learn from the mistakes uh, uh, rather than simply repeat them as to, in order to confirm that it was so wise last time. Can I just say as we wrap, thank you uh, to all uh, involved with Goodfellows for the way in which, as I was writing this book, I was getting weekly stimulus. John in particular was incredibly generous with his time and reading the thing in draft and finding lots of mistakes, which I hope I mostly corrected. But um, uh, to, to viewers of Goodfellows, let, let me just stress uh, that, that this is actually an incredibly vibrant intellectual community that I'm lucky enough to be a, a part of. Uh, and uh, if the book is not a disaster in its own right, then it must be in large measure thanks to my, my colleagues at Hoover. Thank you, Neil. The title of the book, once again, Doom the Politics of Catastrophe. It is out today. You have run out of excuses for getting it by it now. And that's a wrap for this episode of Goodfellows, but don't despair. We'll be back next week with a new topic, new conversation. In the meantime, keep those questions coming and you can send them to our website we've created for you. And that website is hoover.org forward slash ask goodfellows. Let me repeat that for you. Hoover.org forward slash ask goodfellows. Neil Ferguson's book, yet again, I'm going to remind you one more time, Doing the Politics of Catastrophe. Great conversation today, folks. Neil, good luck on the book tour. We hope to see you soon back on this channel. Uh, on the behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Calcran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best. By all means, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.